0: Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Everything Economics. I'm your host, Talia Murdoch, and would like to begin by acknowledging that we are fortunate to be able to gather on the unceded territory of the Coast Salish people, where this podcast is recorded. Today, I'm going to be doing a bit of complaining, getting critical of the way the recent mining boom in Western Australia was managed. I know it is kind of pointless because the opportunities that existed are already gone, but hey, any day is a good day to highlight the flaws of a conservative government In economics, boom simply means rapid growth. So when we're talking about a mining boom, tech boom, property boom, we just mean that that sector is experiencing fast growth above previous averages. From 2003 to about 2013 or so, how long it lasted is really up for debate, Australia experienced the largest mining boom in its history since the gold rush of the 1800s. Honestly, one of the largest mining booms in the world. Mining investment was at its highest point Unemployment was low and the cash was rolling in. This was mostly in part to massive demand for iron ore, which is used to make steel, the backbone of any developed country. Western Australia was oh so lucky to have an abundance of this resource in its northern Pilbara region. I'll put a map on capegoblins.com so you can see where I'm talking about. It is very isolated, about 1200 kilometers north of the state capital Perth. Now, coal was also experiencing similar market changes and was booming, but I'm just going to be focusing on iron ore today. Before this boom began, a ton of iron ore sold for about $40. This wasn't really high enough for companies, even large ones, to make much of a profit, so investment in the industry was very low. There was still an industry there, but it wasn't as big as it would become. This was in about 2001, 2002. Now, over the next 10 years, The price of iron ore rose exponentially, reaching a peak of about $180 per ton in 2011-2012. This was an unprecedented 350% increase in price. It was massive for the WA economy. Mining investment quickly rose to just shy of $50 billion in 2012-13, and over 100,000 jobs existed that were directly in mining, let alone the impacts of the multiplier effect. Exploration investment also doubled over this time as people tried to take advantage of the high prices and opportunity to make a lot of money. Gross state product, which is the state equivalent of GDP, grew a lot too, as would be expected. In the 2001-2002 fiscal year, GSP only grew by 1.5%, which is below what you want. You want about 2-3% growth for a stable economy. This went up to 6.6% the following year, reaching a peak of 9.4% growth in 2011-2012. Even after the growth rate fell, the state continued to grow by about 6% for the next two years, so we're looking at above average growth rates for over a decade. Eventually, in 2016-17, the WA economy shrunk by 2.7% and is now forecast to obtain reasonable growth of 2-3% in the coming years. Again, I emphasize this kind of growth is great, but it is not sustainable and must be skillfully managed to enjoy its benefits into the long term. The economy was operating beyond full capacity, which means there is a lot of employment opportunities and therefore a lot of money going around. But this led to high inflation in WA, high population growth as workers flocked to the state, a huge rise in property prices, and an almost 0% vacancy rate in the capital of Perth at any given time. I remember wanting to look for a rental closer to the city in maybe 2013, so all of the boom impacts were still in play, even though it was scaling down, and you had to pay a $50 fee just to submit a rental application. It was crazy. Unemployment rates also continued to fall and reached a low of 3.5% in 2012. Now, this sounds great. But every economy will have a natural rate of unemployment of about 5% at any given time, accounting for seasonal and transitional changes in labor. So when an economy goes below this, we absolutely know that it is operating above capacity and therefore above full employment, which is why we get inflation. So why did this boom happen? Well, this was more or less due to the Chinese demand for iron ore. Iron ore is used to create steel and steel is the backbone of any developed or developing nation. They were growing and undertaking huge infrastructure projects and Western Australia was one place with the resource that was also conveniently in the same time zone. Up to 2012, China had a two-month supply of iron ore just sitting at their ports to maintain their growth. If you look at global crude steel production as an indicator for iron ore demand over the long term, You will see a very steady rise in production and then an exponential increase from about 2003 onwards, which eventually plateaued. Exponential growth generally is not sustainable. It can last a long time, sure, but when you have one country alone increasing their global share of crude steel production from 23% in 2003 to 46% in 2012, well, you shouldn't become dependent on related industries alone, and this is what we were seeing in China meaning a dependency on iron ore, which is exactly what the WA government did. Okay, so in Australia, states have the right to collect royalties on natural resources. Royalties are essentially a tax that is paid by the profits made from mining a natural resource. The idea is that the natural resource belongs to the state as a whole. Just because someone or some company has the capacity to dig it out and sell it doesn't mean that the people shouldn't enjoy its benefits. Royalties are paid so all people can benefit in some way as revenue is raised that goes back into the state. Now, goods and services tax, which exists all over the world, is paid to the federal government, who then allocate it based on the needs of each state. This is also informed by each state's capacity to raise their own revenue. So in this scenario, and as has happened to many other states in the past, WA became a donor state. Because of the mining boom and huge revenue potential, they had the capacity to collect more royalties and payroll tax, among other things, so didn't receive much GST revenue during the boom years. The state government at the time threatened to secede from Australia, meaning it would become its own country, but this was obviously a bad idea and never happened. Before the boom, WA had predominantly been a recipient of GST, meaning it was getting more given to it than it was distributing out to the country. So it was a totally fair situation to be in. Share the wealth. Also, they could have done so much more to generate more revenue from this unique industry boom. During these years, royalties on iron ore were only 4%, meaning just 4% of the profits made on a ton of iron ore should be paid to the government. Now, know that Rio Tinto, BHP and Fortescue Metals Group, they were the three main producers of iron ore, were able to generate a profit when the price of iron ore was above about $35 to $40 per tonne. It was being sold on the global market for $180 per tonne at its peak, so it isn't like this would really hurt them. Considering the vast majority of their profits went offshore anyway to overseas investors and shareholders, it bewilders me why the government never increased royalties to keep the benefits within WA and within Australia. On top of low royalties, there were also an abundance of tax breaks and subsidies available to mining companies that further offset their requirement to reinvest profits into the economy it came from. But alas, they were ever so conservative and favoured small government with low taxes. Let the rich get richer. They have worked hard. Let them do as they please. This was a really short-sighted and greedy mentality. They claimed that raising royalties would not be fair on smaller exploration companies, But the truth is, the smaller exploration companies weren't really looking to produce iron ore. Rather, they wanted to find it and sell their company to one of the big three because there is no way they could make much money from mining the ore itself. So this argument was just propaganda. Now, here is where my frustration gets clear. In 2012, royalties made up 25% of WA state revenue, so a quarter of its whole government income. 80% of royalties came from iron ore. This was only increasing during the boom years, with iron ore royalties growing upwards of 15% per year, bringing in hundreds of millions of dollars. During the 2015-16 fiscal years, as the iron ore price declined by 44%, royalties were now only able to make up 13% of the WA budget. So if you recall me mentioning that WA allowed itself to become dependent on one industry alone, well here is the proof. I will link the state budget website on cavegoblins.com. If you're a numbers and accounting fan, you can find all financial data for every year in Budget Paper 3. Even more frustrating to me, and many others I'm sure, was the massive infrastructure projects the state government undertook during the boom years. We not only had a revenue problem, there was absolutely a spending problem going on too. Now, I am in no way saying that these projects I'm about to mention should have never been done. The timing of them is what I don't agree with from an economic perspective. Now, I'm just going to go ahead and list them off, including their value. So there was the Fiona Stanley Hospital at $2 billion, Perth Children's Hospital at $1.2 billion, Perth Arena at $1 billion by the time it was finally finished, Elizabeth Key at over $400 million, Perth Stadium at $1.6 billion, And a wealth of other smaller projects throughout the state. These are just the big ones and they all happened in the metropolitan region of Perth rather than the regions where the iron ore actually came from. So it might seem like a great idea to build new hospitals, schools, stadiums, things that will grow and improve the state. It is a great idea. Just don't do it when your economy is already booming. The money spent during these years should have been put into a futures fund so it could be enjoyed by future generations to come. Doing this would also give the government the ability to stimulate the economy with more spending when the iron ore price began to fall and mining began to slow. The same employment levels and growth could have continued to be enjoyed for many more years, even if they didn't raise royalties like I really wish they had. Also consider that in WA, the term of an elected government is five years. This is enough time to implement policy that can be sustained over the long term, like a robust futures fund. In Norway, for example, where oil is abundant, 50% of mining profits go to the state, and a percentage of this goes into a sovereign wealth fund that is now worth $1 trillion, reserved for future generations beyond oil. I can hear people saying now, Norway is smaller than Australia with a lower population, it's easier to manage, the culture is different. But honestly, this is not an acceptable reason as to why something like this couldn't have worked. If there was a push and effort put into actually educating the public about what the purpose of a futures fund is and how it would help them, their children, their grandchildren, then perhaps the state could continue to grow strong well into the future instead of being in high debt. Now, I'm going to go off script here and I definitely want to discuss the whole issue around Aboriginal land. In 2014, this same government who didn't raise any revenue Blah 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 announced that they would be closing 150 remote communities in the Pilbara and Kimberley areas. There are about 12,000 Aboriginal people, so First Nations in Australia, living in these regions who are essentially just going to be kicked out of their homes because the state government didn't want to have to fund their electricity, their water, various infrastructure, which is very basic and often inadequate for what you actually need to live just within basic human rights so I think this is really one of the key issues that I haven't explored a lot myself but I wanted to bring it up perhaps they could have generated enough revenue to provide these communities so they could have clean water so they could have a school so they could have access to online education to online medicine It's just not good enough to say these places are too expensive. We don't have the money when they had the money and they could have gotten the money if there was just some forward thinking progressive policy in play about raising revenue from a destructive mining industry. I'll try and find a few more resources to post on cavegoblins.com around that. Even when I was doing this research myself, it is not the thing that comes up first when you Google what happened. And it took me a while to to even dot the pieces together and think, oh yeah, that's a serious problem. I don't know a lot about it now, but I'm definitely going to mention it in this episode. Okay, so back to the script where I don't fumble over my words. It's not like the federal government didn't try either. When Labor was voted into power in 2007, they tried to implement a mining tax known as the super profit tax, much like that of Norway's. This was incredibly unpopular at the time. It was announced as part of the 2010 budget and stemmed from the Henry Tax Review, which was a comprehensive, independent analysis of Australia's finances. And this was just one of the recommendations. I think there were 127 in total or something like that. Now, unfortunately, this tax that they ended up writing was overly complex and poorly sold, as new taxes often are. On top of this the big mining companies funded advertising campaigns against the tax spending upwards of 20 million dollars each pretty clear to see who was driving the unpopularity at the time these companies were able to force the government to massively rewrite the tax such that it wouldn't be able to raise much revenue that's how much influence big business and mining have in australia this modified tax was introduced in 2012 expected to raise $3.7 billion that year and only reaching $400 million. It was very flawed, only taxing iron ore and coal, and allowed for broad investment offsets. Sadly, it was not successful. Now, while I'm talking about the Labour government here, I want to quickly point out for anyone who does not know, much of the public believed, and still do believe, that the Labour government spent too much money when in office and wasted mining revenue, what was there anyway. But a Treasury paper actually confirmed that the former Howard government, the Conservative Liberal Coalition, actually spent 90% of its $330 billion revenue in their last few years. So there's that. Since the boom, WA's population has dropped dramatically. Gross state product is down, but is still above Australia's GDP per capita. Unemployment rates, though, are on the rise, just above the level of natural unemployment. Things don't look great. Sadly, the state has become so dependent on one industry that it forgot to develop any others. There is no tech, barely any research, little entertainment or arts industry really, few services, little tourism. Everything was just mining and finance for such a long time. The worst part is that this kind of boom will never be seen again. The state and the country for that matter needs to find new ways to develop and grow and earn a place in the international market again. I would personally love to see large investment in solar technology and other, other renewables, but that also isn't likely. I mean, the Tesla battery was in large part created by scientists and engineers in Australia. When their funding was cut by the conservative liberal government, they left and took the technology to an external company, which is a household name. This is happening across the board and really deserves its own episode, which I will do at some point. So anyway, thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed hearing me rant a bit. I'm pretty passionate about this topic, if you can't tell. I think it is a really good case study of how capitalism fails. So thanks again for listening. You can follow the show on Twitter at Every Economics or send me an email, economicspodcast at gmail.com. If you're interested in contributing to the show in some way or talking about your work, please reach out to me. I love collaborating with other people. Set the show to auto-download and please rate and review on iTunes as this is the easiest way to support the show. All it costs is five minutes of your time and it makes me very, very happy. I have one review, so why not be the second? You can find the whole network at Cave Goblins across all social media platforms. We have added some new shows. So do head over to our website or Twitter and check them out. They are great. Thanks again. Be kind to each other. I am Talia Murdoch, and this has been Everything Economics. Are you a new DM? Are you an experienced DM? Doesn't matter. Listen to DMs of Vancouver for great DMing advice. This is